In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you for joining us once again in our series, Life, the Islamic Answer. As you will remember, we were discussing the topic, the very broad topic or theme of knowledge in Islam. We said for knowledge to be Islamic, it must meet two conditions. The first is that it must be sought and acquired with the right intentions, with sincerity. And secondly, it must lead to action. And we said for that action to actually appear in our behavior, it begins from very deep within. It has to change how you view the world, your general attitude towards the world. And that's why we called it transformational knowledge. The knowledge affects you, and then the manner in which it affects you is going to show eventually in the manner in which you behave. And so you translate the knowledge that you have into your behaviors and your actions. So after the preliminary remarks that we made about this topic in general of knowledge in Islam having to lead to action, that knowledge must lead to action, we said the first concrete step that the Muslim must therefore take is to become a learner. So, and of course, this is building on a number of premises that we've established in the past, so we're not spending too much time repeating. The first step, the concrete step that we take must be to become a learner in the Islamic sense. What we covered until now from being a learner had to do first of all with the importance and importance is too weak of a word, the necessity of seeking knowledge in Islam. Inshallah, this part is well established. And the second point, we spent a little bit of time on a number of related points. I think the, the, the second one where we spent a bit of time on the last time that we met uh, was this distinction between uh, you know, being a Muslim versus being an Arabi. And we said the Arabi is basically, you know, if we wanted to give a very rough translation uh, of the notion, it would be someone who is religiously illiterate and who rejects, who refuses to learn, who does not want to learn, who underappreciates, undervalues the merit of knowledge, the people of knowledge, and so on and so forth. So they do what they can, basically, to stay away from the sources of knowledge. Right, And we said that a Muslim is never supposed to be in a situation where they are cutting themselves off from the sources of knowledge. Okay, so inshallah, all of this is clear. And today we continue with what we started introducing in one way or another. We basically said we're going to get a little bit more practical, a little bit more concrete, um, and start talking about, and not in any depth, because each one of these could be its own topic and we could spend a very long time on it. The idea here is simply to talk very quickly, to list almost, some of the ingredients of being a good learner in Islam. And by the way, this is also something of the beauty of our religion, that it doesn't only talk about things that are you know, of the utmost importance. Yes, it does do that. But it also has, if you dig enough and if you 
take the time to learn those things and look for those things, you will probably find something about everything. In some cases, you have very direct teachings. In most cases, you will have general principles that you can apply to your life. But one way or another, you'll see that anything of any importance in human life will have been addressed one way or another in our religion. And of course, we consider that to be a huge benefit and a huge plus in our religion that it has something to say in terms of guidance. And this could be looked at in another way too. Sometimes we may think, you know, these people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses, and we've talked a little bit about them, He chooses them to guide humanity. And in addition to all of their own intrinsic, innate merits and values and knowledge and wisdom and so on and so forth, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also bestows additional knowledge on them so that they can perform this mission properly. And yet we see that when they are asked about things that many of us might consider very mundane and trivial they take a lot of time and a lot of they give it a lot of importance to make sure that those asking get the information that they're seeking and this is a form of their guidance and their mercy and their and inshallah we're going to talk about that their humility their modesty that if you come seeking knowledge you will get it they will still guide you they might tell you that there are more important priorities for instance they might redirect you but there's always something. You leave with something. There's never an arrogance. There's never going to be uh, uh, an air of superiority that makes you not want to come back and seek more knowledge. Okay? So inshallah, all of that stays in mind. So the idea here was that we move slowly towards what we can consider to be some of the main ingredients for being a good learner in Islam. And as I said, I'm trying to keep this more concrete, more practical. Okay, we talked a lot about very deep spiritual uh, uh, matters, context, and so on and so forth. So we're lightening the discussion a little bit, although you'll still feel that there's a huge potential here for these to go in other places too, much deeper places. Where we're going to keep it uh, a little bit more practical, inshallah. We see what we can cover today. Uh, we may be able to finish this topic or not, uh, and we can build on it. Uh, for So if you will remember, we said that uh, the next components that we want to address for the learner, so these are the main ingredients to become a learner, we'll specifically talk about the manners of learning and the manners, the etiquette, the adab, and the akhlaq related to learning and being a learner. These are two different things. Okay, that's one. And then from there, the merits of being a learner in Islam. And that will wrap up our big topic of the learner. And then we'll move on to the teacher. Now that you know, you have to teach. And so we move to the next part of it and we'll see what Islam has to say about the one who carries the knowledge and who now has a duty to share it. Okay, so that's kind of the the, the path that we're trying to follow. So the first... Uh, hadith or number of a hadith yeah one hadith here the first ingredient has to do with what I called dedication okay so the first ingredient has to do with the energy required from you to become a learner the time it requires from you to become a learner the focus it requires the investment okay 
it could be monetary, but there are things that are much more difficult and much more important than the monetary investment that you have to put in if you are serious about becoming a learner in Islam. So the first ingredient is dedication. Okay, tafarrugh. So we're going to see that in this first hadith from the Holy Prophet He says when Prophet Musa السلام, and we've talked about these hadith in a number of times where Prophet Musa السلام, encounters Al-Khidr and he asks him to give him some advice. Musa السلام, Inna Musa السلام, Al-Khidr so he asked Al-Khidr to give him some advice. So Al-Khidr told him a number of things. And then among these things he said, Ya Musa, tafarragh lil'ilm in kunta turidu. liman So he said, O Musa, dedicate yourself to knowledge if you truly want it. If you are serious about knowledge, then you have to dedicate yourself to it. It doesn't mean that 100% of your life has to be dedicated to knowledge. But there has to be a component of your life, and we're going to see it in the ahadith, that is clearly dedicated to knowledge, to seeking knowledge, to securing that knowledge. And then he add, he added, for knowledge is to those who dedicate themselves to it or who dedicated themselves to it. Okay, in case it wasn't clear. And we could spend a very long time on this. But I think at least a few preliminary remarks on this, and you'll see this is a running theme. The first one is just the idea of dedication. I think this goes in a very, in, in a number of different ways. It goes against the spirit of today's culture. Today's culture is not a culture of dedication. Today's culture, no matter what you look at, no matter what type of knowledge, and unfortunately this also seems to apply to religious knowledge, no matter where you look at, you see what is called the death of expertise. I'll come back to the death of expertise in a second. It's a culture where you might feel that you're getting enough knowledge by watching a 30-second YouTube clip or Instagram clip or even a five-minute clip or even a seven-minute clip. That does serve a purpose. The purpose is really good. It might serve as a hook. It might serve as a good reminder. But that clip in itself is not the knowledge. And inshallah, what we're doing here in this series, where we're just, according to me, scratching the surface on a lot of these issues, a lot of these topics in our religion, we can see how much depth there is how much more we can learn, how much more we can acquire in terms of knowledge about any of this. So to think that I've now gained a sufficient amount of knowledge about any topic because I watched a clip or I, I heard, maybe I listened to a lecture, maybe I read a little article or a blog entry or, 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 and suddenly I feel like I have a sufficient amount of knowledge about a topic. That's completely, completely contradictory to the spirit of knowledge. And we're going to see that today. So I don't want to repeat this. We're going to simply mention it once and then you find it every time we're going to mention it. There's an insistence that if you are serious about acquiring knowledge, you have to dedicate yourself to it. You have to put in the energy and the time and the effort and you have to be willing to 
repeat again and again. There has to be regularity. There has to be consistency. And as I said, this is clearly the case when it comes to within our communities, people who are approaching religion. This is clearly the case. But even outside of religion, this is something that everyone is starting to notice. There's been books, I said, The Death of Expertise. I didn't mean the book, but there's actually a book called The Death of Expertise. Okay, so for those who are interested, it was written, I don't know, eight years ago, I think, seven, eight years ago. Maybe a, a side remark, and then I'll, I'll, I'll say something about the book. Um, I know that there's a number of, of people who are very interested in book recommendations, so sometimes I slip them in there throughout the, the lectures. I hope that it's clear that when I mention books, it doesn't mean that I necessarily agree with everything in the book. There might be components, dimensions, aspects of the book that are very worth, very much worth looking into, learning from, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we agree with that what's everything that's mentioned in the book. The Death of Expertise is definitely one such book where I definitely don't agree with everything that is in, mentioned in the book, but there is one component of it that is very clear and that is very well established and presented by the author, Tom Nichols, where he's trying to show that we're now starting to live in a culture. His focus in that book is the United States and the level of academic research and intellectual research and real expertise and how it is being treated, especially when we look at media, when we look at uh, you know, political discourse, when we look at what's being put out there about certain subject matter versus what the specialists are actually saying. And you see that the gap in a lot of cases is growing, is huge and growing. And so he looks at a number of case studies about this and he compares and he gives some explanations. There, This death of expertise is a symptom of a lot of things, but it's a symptom, bottom line, of our culture. Right? There is a lack of recognition, a lack of respect that someone has spent that much time and that much energy and that much dedication to specialize in a topic. Okay, And this applies to religion too. There, it's almost as though opinion, even an informed opinion, is becoming as, if not more important than what someone who has spent 10, 15, 20 years studying a topic, a field, is saying about it or concludes about it, or explains or teaches about it. Okay, this is disastrous. And we have to be careful, and we have to make sure that this is not somewhere we're slipping, individually and collectively as communities. Okay, expertise has to be recognized, and expertise has to be respected as such. Okay, so that's definitely um, a main point that I think we have to keep uh, in mind. The second point, and I think this one also is going to be a running theme today, when Al-Khidr tells Musa, dedicate yourself, clearly there's here a theme that I think is very near and dear to many of us. We've talked about it indirectly in the past, and this is time management. This is prioritization, planning your life. What are you going to give priority to? How do I dedicate myself to knowledge and becoming a learner? Obviously, this is only one part of my life. So what about the rest? If all the rest is a mess, 
and I'm failing and I'm not meeting my objectives, I can't expect myself to suddenly be very successful in this one area. And Islam rejects that. Islam wants you to be dutiful. Islam wants you to be balanced. You recognize your priorities and you give to every priority its proper due. So you prioritize properly. You can't neglect an aspect at the expense of another. Right? So inshallah, this, you're going to see that this is very much a running theme. In this hadith, it's a very broad general statement. We're going to see that it's going to get a little bit more specific. And as I said, this is the beauty of our religion. Okay? In this case, it just says dedicate yourself to religion. If you're serious about it, dedicate yourself to it. Okay. So maybe the other com- related to this, when we say dedicate, in Arabic, when, when he says farragh, right? Ya Musa tafarragh, afwan. Ya Musa tafarragh lil'ilm. Literally, tafarragh means empty yourself, rid yourself, liberate yourself of everything else for knowledge. When it's time to learn, and so of course this is going to apply to everything else. When you do something, try to fully give yourself to that thing. On the one side, it gives you a great peace of mind. It will make you a lot more successful in that thing. It'll save you time. It'll clear your mind. And in this case, it'll allow you to become much more productive as a learner. Right? When you give yourself fully to that thing, you have to rid yourself, empty yourself, literally, in Arabic. Farragh or tafarragh. Liberate yourself for knowledge, for the sake of knowledge, so that you can acquire it properly. Slightly more detailed hadith. This one from Imam Sadiq alayhi salam. He says, and again talking about Luqman alayhi salam. So, and this is, inshallah, one day you can tie all of these back to the stories of the prophets. I always do this indirectly. I know this is a huge uh, area of interest for many, and we've talked a lot about it in the past. Imam Sadiq alayhi salam, he says, Luqman wa So Imam Sadiq was asked about this hikmah. You will remember the Holy Quran says that we gave, we granted the Luqman wisdom. Right? In, 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 uh, in chapter 31, uh, Surah Luqman, there's a chapter in the Quran by his name, Luqman al-Hakim, the wise Luqman. The Holy Quran says we granted Luqman wisdom. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. Okay, he was such an extraordinary servant of ours, and he did specific things. So we granted him wisdom from ourselves, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says, I granted him wisdom. Okay, and so he was asked, and of course, if you're if you're interested, and this could be a beautiful series, inshallah, in the future, for sure. There's a full page in the Quran, eight, perhaps eight verses in that page in Surah Luqman. There's one page of these pieces of advice that Luqman starts to give to his son. Okay, from the wisdom that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted him. And you see that it is balanced between things that have to do with the spirit and things that have to do with the afterlife and things that have to do with this world, psychological matters, matters related to how your general attitude towards people, towards yourself, towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's all in there. So if you're interested, it starts at uh, verse 12 verse 12 chapter 31 so imam sadiq alayhi salam here he says so imam sadiq is explaining to the person asking him 
He tells him, tell us about this wisdom that Luqman had, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted him, and that he was teaching his son, for instance. So Imam Sadiq alayhi salam, as part, and we're not going to go through the whole hadith, this is the, the part that is relevant. Imam Sadiq says, and Luqman was saying, Waj'al, so this is Luqman giving advice to his son. Waj'al fi ayyamika walayalika wasa'atik linafsika nasiban, I'll read the Arabic in full, linafsika nasiban fi talab al-ilm, fa'innaka lan tajid laka tadhi'an ashadda min tarkih. So Luqman tells his son, and carve out from your days, your nights, and your hours for yourself a share of time, a share to seek knowledge. Carve out from your days and nights and hours a share of time to seek knowledge. For you will never suffer a loss that is greater upon you than neglecting it. A loss greater than neglecting knowledge. Okay, so this is the part that is relevant for us. There's a lot of other pieces of advice that Luqman gives to his son. But here, it's very direct. We could feel very directly addressed by Luqman He's saying the greater loss, there is no greater loss than to let your life slip by your time slip by without carving a little bit of a little bit out of it a share out of it to seek knowledge there's no greater loss in this world and again i think this brings us back to the notion of time management when he says carve out it means again that there is a part of your day a part of your night a part of your hours these could be different Options that Luqman is giving Perhaps a much weaker But still an interpretation of this Is he's telling him Make sure that a part of the day And a part of the night And a part of every hour Or sa'a could also be interpreted As your free time The time that you have In both cases To me this highlights the regularity With which you have to do it There's a consistency That Luqman is highlighting and in addition to that, the point that we already made, which is time management. You have to make sure that there is a component of your day, a component of your week, a component of your month that is equal to seeking knowledge. And inshallah, we're going to talk about that in a second, very clearly, very directly. Because if you go back in time, Luqman salam is way before Islam. We believe that all of the prophets had this type of knowledge, had this type of wisdom. But when we come to our religion, it's not that the Prophet had the wisdom. It's that this wisdom is being shared with humanity so that it becomes the way people live, right? It's intrinsically inbuilt into the religion, into the manner in which you carry yourself, right? This is not an additional uh, luxury that you have. Or in the case of Luqman, an additional wisdom that you had. No, no, this is part of our religion. And a part of it is seeking knowledge and linked with that is managing your time appropriately so that you can seek knowledge. You have to carve out time to seek knowledge. Okay, very clearly. So here there are references to times when he says of your days, of your nights, of your hours. The next hadith, and this is where I think 
it's interesting to see the shift. Now you are within our religion. Okay, so this is the Islamic instruction when it comes to seeking knowledge related to time. Imam Sadiq salam says that the Holy Prophet said, "Uffin li rajulin la yufarrigh nafsahu fi kulli jumu'atin li amri dinih fayata'ahaduhu wa yas'alu an dinih. And in another riwayah, and I'll, I'll say the, the English, Uffin likulli muslimin. And this one is Uffin likulli rajulin. So, woe to, woe to the man, or woe to the Muslim, who does not free himself up every week or every Friday. I'm going to come back to that. Okay? For the affairs of his religion. Woe to the man who does not free himself up every Friday or every week for the affairs of his religion so that he visits it, he visits religion with diligence and asks about his religion. Which means what? Which means this person is learning about their religion. So the first very quick remark in Arabic, في كل جمعة. So, Jum'ah is, is an interesting word in Arabic. It has two very clear possible meanings. It can mean the day, Friday, and usually this is Jumu'ah, Jumu'ah, as you find in the Quran. Right? Surah Al Jumu'ah. And the Quran says, and that's why the, the verse is related to the Friday prayer, Jumu. If it's Jum'ah, a lot of the. Uh, Scholars of, of language, linguists in Arabic have said that this means the week. Right? And this is well known in many parts of the world. That's how they use Jum'ah, which means a week. So there is a possibility that this hadith is talking specifically about the Friday. And there is a possibility that this hadith is talking in general about the week. For us, either case is good. Imam Sadiq is saying that the Holy Prophet says, Woe to the man, woe to the person who is not dedicating at least one day of their week for the affairs of their religion and to seek knowledge, to ask questions about that religion. Okay? I would argue here that the Holy Prophet is saying this is the strict minimum. This is not the person becoming the scholar. Right? This is the every man. This is the commoner. In our religion, and this is, a, as I said, a, a bigger topic. Inshallah, one day we can talk more about it. About time management. There are components in our religion, inbuilt in our religion, that f- should force us or should make it easier for us to better manage our times. For instance, the five prayers. For instance, the Friday prayer, if it is performed, or at least dedicating that day of the week. In Islam, our blessed day, our day of rest, which is not really a day of rest, as you see here, it's a day that you dedicate to otherworldly affairs, religious affairs. In the traditional perception, people say this is your day of worship, and it should be. This is the day that you reconnect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to spiritually recharge yourself for the week. Okay? It's meant that way. 
So starting, you know, the, the eve of Thursday night and the Friday as a day. This is meant to be a time of spirituality. For a lot of us, this is kind of difficult to do because of our lifestyles, because of where we live, because of how we work, because of how we study. You have to make it work. So that's why I say at least bottom line, if this is impossible for you or too difficult to manage, at least make sure that there is a day in the week. If this is not the day, as Islam has put it in place, the Friday. If you can, great, make it the Friday. If you can't, make it work. At least have a day in there somewhere that you can say this is a day where I dedicate myself to my religion, to reconnecting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as I said, the traditional way, the traditional view around this day is that it's a day of worship. So people perform prayers, they read supplications, and there are many of them that we should definitely do. It should definitely be part of our weekly routine. And that includes, for instance, dua and nudbah. That includes, for instance, these are very recommended acts, some sort of religious gathering on a Friday. But here the hadith is focusing on another dimension. Worship is not always going to be worship in the sense of the ritual prayer. And we talked a lot about this. Seeking of knowledge is an act of worship. And our scholars emphasize this a lot. To the point where, when many people, this is a recurrent question, every year in Shahar Ramadan, people ask the question, you have three nights, Layalil Qadr, and people ask the question, what should I be doing in Layal al-Qadr? And the well-known traditional rituals, they are well explained, well mentioned in the books of, of rituals. One of them that many people neglect, but you see the scholars emphasize on it, is seek some knowledge. That should definitely be part of your rituals on Layal al-Qadr. So of course, always go back to how we define knowledge. What's the intent behind it? Is it really the knowledge that will bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? It could be a single narration that you read. That's knowledge. It could be one piece of advice, one verse of the Quran, and understanding its interpretation, its tafsir, that might be enough to change your life. But the idea is the seeking of knowledge itself is an act of worship. We should not see these as two separate things. There's your worship and then there's your seeking of knowledge. No, those are one. The only difference is in the intent. What are you doing it for? What's behind the act? If it's for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you understand its significance and its importance in our religion, then that's it. It has become an act of worship. Okay, so as we said, I think the idea here is if you look to our religion, you see that this time management component has been ingrained in it. Even for someone who is not really good at managing their time, if they're a good Muslim, they're a good practicing Muslim, there is a little bit of that that will start being forced on you. You have to wake up at a certain time to perform your prayer in the morning. If you're serious about that, you probably can't sleep after a certain time. And if you eat too heavy 
or you do certain things, you won't be able to wake up on time to perform your prayer. And then there's another prayer after, and another one, and another one. And after that last one, it's supposed to be rest. So go rest. <laughs> you have another prayer waiting for you the next day. Unless you're actually staying up to worship or seek knowledge, which is not the recommendation, right? You can review knowledge, you can discuss knowledge, you can meditate on knowledge later in the day. That's what it's meant for. But to seek new knowledge and really understand it, you're supposed to do that early in the morning. And we'll see a hadith related to that. Okay, Your mind is still fresh and ready to absorb new information and complex subject matter. You do that earlier in the day. Later in the day, it's for reflection. Okay, In any case. So all of that to say, the issue of time management in our religion is not, again, a luxury. It is part of the religion. There are certain things put in place that you're supposed to do during the day. There are things put in place that you're supposed to do during the week. Okay, that forces you to organize your week. There are things that are recommendations that you're supposed to do during the month. Every month there are specific days that it is very recommended to fast. This is outside of the month of Rajab's, uh, the months of Rajab Shaban and the compulsory fast of Shah Ramadan. Right? Or, you know, the once a year uh, rituals or the once in a lifetime ritual. All of these become priorities they become anchors if you're serious about your faith and you're disciplined then these are going to be moments around which first you're going to prioritize them and around which you're going to structure a lot of things that fall under time management if you have that luxury and alhamdulillah in our religion we often have flexibility right imagine if we had to pray you know you had five minutes to pray because the prayer takes five minutes. That's the time at which you're supposed to pray. The adhan is said. That's the moment at which you say, لَبَّيْكِ You say to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I hear and I obey. Or, you know, I'll get to you in an hour or two or three. Okay, so that's the priority that you give to the adhan and the prayer, for instance. Wouldn't that, if we live that way, wouldn't that force you to put some sort of time management around the day, if it is possible, or to the extent possible, right? So inshallah, we, we come back to that. This is simply kind of a, a hint or a nudge that we see to properly seek knowledge. Knowledge is going to be part of all of the rest of your activities, your daily activities, your weekly activities, your monthly activities. So it has to fit somewhere in there the manner in which you work, the manner in which you take care of your family, you have social relationships, you have other duties, you have responsibilities, you have time for entertainment and, and resting, all of that is good. You have to prioritize, you have to understand your duties and know that part of it in there has to be dedicated to seeking knowledge. Okay, the next hadith or the next number of ahadith related to, we spent way too much time on the first ingredient. We'll try to go a little bit faster. The second ingredient is, and we've talked a lot about this, seeking deeper understanding. The second ingredient for seeking knowledge is that you cannot be satisfied and happy with a superficial understanding of the things you learn. Always go deeper. Always try to understand the connections. Always have a critical view. 
Always try to see what more is there to learn about it. What does this really tell you? What does it mean for me, for my life, for my community, for society? It has to mean something. It cannot simply be an accumulation of raw data, information. Okay? So Imam Ali alayhi salam says, Himmatu al-Sufaha al-Riwayah wa Himmatu al-Ulama al-Dirayah. The preoccupation or the concern of the fools is narration or the ability to repeat, the ability to narrate. That's their preoccupation. And they consider that knowledge, right? My ability to repeat what someone else has said, that is viewed as though this is knowledge. And he says, The scholars, what they're preoccupied with, what they're concerned with is deep understanding, true understanding of what they are learning. This is very different. And of course, you see the first one is always focused on someone else. Okay? Can I repeat it to others? Whereas the second case, you're always focused on yourself. Do I truly understand? What does it mean for me? Okay? And so the difference between Ruwaya and Daraya, of course, is huge. And there's a huge difference in the investment required. In order to be able to simply repeat what others are saying, it doesn't require a big investment. Unfortunately, even that level is sometimes not attained. Okay? But simply repeating what others are saying, as opposed to truly understanding yourself what is being said, understand it fully, having it have meaning for you, this is going to require much more effort. And in a lot of cases, this is not always something you can learn from a teacher. There is some daraya that will come from the teacher. There is some deeper understanding. The teacher may direct you to it, may hint to it, if they are a really, really good teacher. And they are rare. There's a saying attributed to Einstein. He says that if there's anything that you cannot explain to a six-year-old, then this simply means that you don't understand it yourself. This is about the idea that if you really understand something, fully understand something, then you should be able to explain it in very simple terms. And you understand how it's all connected together, and really, bottom line, you should be able to find a way to explain it even to a child. When we connect this topic to choosing the teacher, sometimes the teacher is not even saying something very deep, right? It's some, something simple, something superficial in itself. That's fine. But sometimes they are explaining something deep, something complex. If they are not being very successful at explaining it, they may lack some communication tools. But in a lot of cases, what they're lacking is true understanding of what they're explaining. And that's why it's so complicated. It sounds so difficult. Otherwise, if they understand their role as a teacher, as a communicator, they should find a way to be able to explain that and simplify that so that people learn from it. Okay? In any case, inshallah, we come to this topic again. All of that to say, this does require, this daraya, this deeper understanding often requires much more of an individual effort from you. You have to see what this knowledge means for you. You have to think about it. You have to reflect on it. You have to constantly review it 
and relive it in your mind and discuss it with others and ask questions about it. Right? This is what brings this daraya about. There's a the next hadith related to the same ingredient, the second ingredient. Um, and I talked a little bit about this, but I didn't have the hadith, so this is the hadith. He says, حدثنا من كان يقرئنا من أصحاب النبي صلى الله عليه وآله أنهم كانوا يقترئون من رسول الله صلى الله عليه وآله عشر آيات فلا يأخذون في العشر الأخرى حتى يعلموا ما في هذه من العلم والعمل They say that those who used to teach us so this is the second and third generations after the Holy Prophet and his companions they say those who used to teach us from the companions of the Prophet informed us that they used to learn from the Messenger of God 10 verses at a time. And this is not because, as we have explained in the past, because they can't learn more. It's because, and they do not take the next 10 until they learn what is contained in them in knowledge and action. What are these verses truly saying? What does it mean, or how does it translate into my behavior and my actions? Once I have really understood this in these 10 verses, I'm ready to move on to the next 10. And this is, of course, going to be very different. For one person, it might be one day. For another, it might be a week or a month. Right? But again, this brings us to the notion of darayah. The important thing is not just to learn the verses and be able to say them by heart. It's what, what are they saying, these verses? What does it mean for me? How does it change my life that I know these 10 verses now? The next ingredient Al-Mudhakara So this one can be translated in, in a number of different ways the, the title I gave to it is Serious Study Okay, But this could be interpreted or understood as Thinking about what you learned Making sure that you memorize it or learn it very well Depending on the type of information Discussing it with others and there's certainly that in the wording, al-mudakara, I'll come to it in a second. When there are issues, when there are questions about it, being able to solve them, and at the bottom of all of this, the constant review. You can't just let go. You know, once the information is in your mind, that's it, you move on to something else. There has to be a constant reliving of that information, a reassessment of that information or that knowledge. Okay, and we're going to see that very, very clearly. But this hadith was simply to highlight the general principle. And again, from the Holy Prophet, that was the whole purpose of the series, right? That we don't come up with anything from ourselves. Okay, the Holy Prophet says, So maintain or hold on to reviewing knowledge, discussing amongst each other knowledge, or Deliberation, right? Deliberating over knowledge. This is why in a lot of the serious circles of knowledge, especially the traditional ones where religious knowledge is taught, you don't have a luxury, it's not a choice, to do what is called al-mubahatha or al-mudhakara. And this is directly from the hadith, from the narrations. You have to have one or more study partners with whom you go over every lesson that you went over, where you attended, where a teacher gave a lecture, 
information, you have to have someone with whom you discuss this to see what did you understand? Because this is what I understood. Is this uh, matching or are there differences? Are there gaps? Are there things that we may have not understood in the same way or not understood at all? Maybe we need to go back and ask questions. Maybe there are contradictory ways we're understanding this. And this, of course, forces the person. It's easy to say, yeah, I understood. Can you say it in your own words? Can you repeat it? Have you assimilated it? And this forces you also to prepare to become, ideally, a teacher at the same time as you are learning. This forces you to make sure that you're really understanding what you're learning because you're able to repeat it to others. This is part of the cycle. Right? So, inshallah, this... uh, all of this is clear. <clears throat> We're, we'll talk a lot more about this topic of mudakara. I'm keeping the, the majority of the hadith related to this and the merits of the learner. Okay, you'll see the reward. I'm trying to avoid those. All the hadith that have to do with the rewards, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is uh, securing, is promising to those who become learners. And all of this time investment and effort and energy that you're putting in to become a learner is rewarded. Rewarded very generously in ways that cannot be matched by anything else in Islam. Okay, so we're keeping that till later, inshallah. The only thing is, two quick points about this mudakara. The first one, clearly, when the Holy Prophet is saying that you should always maintain mudakara, mudakara is definitely a step beyond learning. Mudakara means that I've done the learning, I've learned Now I have to go the extra mile, go out of my way and do a mudakara. Okay, the reason why I'm saying mudakara in Arabic is the next point. The next point is, there certainly seems to be, around this word, an activity that, a a, a nuance, that has to do with doing this with someone else. Okay, do you have to do it with someone else? No. You can find a way to review and to reflect and to meditate, go over the subject matter you learned by yourself on your own. Okay? But the way it is being said, the way this construction is applied here, the Arabic construction, usually means that this is done with someone else. So this opens the door once again to a collective dimension to knowledge. Okay? And there is also a benefit, a social benefit or a collective benefit to this. Because of you wanting to review, you're probably forcing someone else who would be forgetting to also review and also remember. And who knows what this will mean for them, of how they think and how they behave and so on and so forth, because of this little review that is being forced. Okay? This is what creates the community of knowledge that we've been talking about. There's this constantly taking place. I'm looking at the time, so I think we have time. I'll try to limit my my comments here. We have time to finish this ingredient at least. The next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, عَلَى الْمُتَعَلِّمْ أَنْ يَدْأَبَ نَفْسَهُ فِي طَلَبِ الْعِلْمِ وَلَا يَمِلْ مِنْ تَعَلُّمِهِ وَلَا يَسْتَكْثِرْ مَا عَلِمْ It's incumbent upon the one seeking knowledge that he exhausts himself, that he tires himself in seeking knowledge, and that he never tires from learning it, 
and that he never considers what he knows to be much. Okay, so there are a few things here. There are three things that Imam Ali alayhi salam is saying. The first one is that, is that he says, you have to be willing and ready to put in the hard work, the dedication that we talked about. Yad abnafsahu. You have to put in the hard work if you are serious about lear- about learning. Okay, so this is the importance of hard work. The second thing, Imam Ali alayhi salam, he's talking about a resilience. He's talking about a long journey. Again, bringing us back to the notion that to become someone who carries real knowledge, this cannot happen overnight. This takes time. So you have to stay the course. Right? When he says, يَدْ أَبَ نَفْسَهُ فِي طَلَبِ الْعِلْمِ وَلَا يَمِلْ مِنْ تَعَلُّمِهِ And that he does not tire. Find a way not to get bored, not to lose interest, not to lose your passion for seeking knowledge. Okay, this has to be the case all the time. And, and this is a matter of attitude, and to never consider what you know to be a lot. Suddenly I'm proud and happy with myself that I know so much. Don't focus on what you know. Focus on what you don't know. And then you'll see how much there is still ahead of you to accomplish and to do. So Imam Ali alayhi salam is giving really very practical, very concrete pieces of advice here. One has to do very much with attitude where he says, never consider what you have learned, what you know, to be a lot. And the rest has to do with resilience and the importance of hard work, which we already talked about. Of course, there's also another component to this and we'll see if we talk about it in, under this heading or the next heading, which is about the manners of the learner. And this has to do with arrogance. Okay, but this is not a false humility. It's not I pretend that I am modest and I pretend that I don't know a lot when in truth, inside, deep down, I believe, I feel like I know so much because I've spent time learning, listening to lectures, reading books, I've become an expert. Everybody respects me in this field. Okay? So this is someone who does not really match this because deep inside, I really believe that I do know a lot. So what is going to happen? I no longer will feel the need to seek more. That's it. This is what starts killing your desire and your passion for wanting to get more knowledge. The next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, الْعِلْمَ تَزْدَدْ عِلْمَ Seek knowledge, seeking knowledge will increase your knowledge. Sometimes people say, okay, but where do I start? I want to learn where do I start. So this, is, this is one answer from Imam Ali alayhi salam. He says, you start by wanting to learn. If you really want to learn, then that is your first step on the way of learning. You have to have a passion. You have to have a desire and a deep interest for learning. If it's not there, you'll run out of steam very quickly and you will not really have learned anything much. Next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam. He says, لا يحرز العلم إلا من يطيل درسه. And another hadith related to this one, لا فقه لمن لا يديم درسه. 
So the first one, no one can secure knowledge except the one who lasts in its study. And the other one, he has no deep understanding, he has no fiqh, he has no deep understanding, the one who does not regularly maintain his study. Okay, all of this is around this ingredient of what I called serious studying. Okay, you have to be serious in the sense of us today in our world and how we understand what it means to study. Right? You have to sit, you have to empty your mind, you have to focus, you have to learn the subject matter, understand it. All of that is studying. Imam Ali alayhi salam in the first one, he doesn't say the one who does not really study. He says the one who does not spend a long time studying. Only the one who spends a long time in this study, in this manner of studying, will secure knowledge. Okay, and in the second one, you will not attain deep understanding if you are not consistent, if you are not regular in keeping up with your studies of the knowledge that you are learning. So here, the importance of resilience and knowledge. Knowledge is not this level of knowledge. True knowledge is not always something easy. right? You, you want to be able to just be comfortable and happy and listen to a little clip and think that this knowledge is just going to be downloaded into you and you're going to become the next scholar. That's not how it works. Okay? And the hadith, we're not going through the verses of the Qur'an, but the hadith that we're going through until now are very clear. It's hard work. And you have to show yourself, you have to show Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you're serious about this. You have to put in the dedication. You have to put in the work, and then you will be rewarded. Okay? So the importance of resilience. Resilience means you're, you persevere. You don't stop because you failed once or twice or three times. Because it's getting a little difficult, that's it, it's not for me. You keep going. You're serious about this. The regularity of the study, which brings us back to time management. Okay? And yeah, here, you, you can notice how the Imam says, لا فقه لمن لا يديم الدرس. We said fiqh is what? It's a deep understanding of something. The understanding that goes to the bottom of it. So if you see that people have a superficial understanding, this is what's lacking. It's that there is no consistent, regular, deep study of the subject matter. And that's why they are able to repeat, but they're not able to delve into the subject matter. Okay, That becomes a criteria for recognizing who do you go after when you're seeking knowledge. Okay, And the, I think I'm going to stop with this hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam. He says, مَنْ أَكْثَرَ الْفِكْرَ فِي مَا تَعَلَّمْ أَتْقَنَ عِلْمَهُ وَتَفَهَّمَ مَا لَمْ يَكُنْ يَفْهَمْ The one who reflects a lot about that which he has learned. So again, you see going the extra mile. It's not enough to say, I learned it. I heard someone say it once, that's enough, I learned it. Check mark. No. The one who reflects a lot about that which he has learned will perfect his knowledge. So that knowledge that you have acquired will become a lot more polished, a lot more complete, a lot more perfect because you keep thinking about it and will understand that which he had not before. 
This is a type of understanding that was not there. And anyone who has spent any amount of time trying to understand things, the more you dedicate yourself to it, the more you think about it, you put energy reflecting on things that you have learned, the more you see that there are things that open up intellectually for you about that topic. You start making links, you start making connections, you start seeing things that you had not seen before. So Imam Ali is saying, when you learn something, don't stop at just saying, I learned it. Go far in reflecting on what you learned so that what you learned becomes much more polished and much more complete. And there's new understanding that will emerge for you that wasn't there before. If you follow this method, whatever you learn, go further. Keep exploring and thinking and meditating, reflecting on what you learned to see what that means for you. And of course, inshallah, this is very clear and we're going to keep talking about it. But there's clearly in the ahadith that we looked at today, there's clearly a distinction being made between learning and understanding deeply. Right? And you're seeing that for someone who is serious, as the imams expected their followers to be, people who are serious about seeking knowledge, it's not enough to just learn. You have to go an additional step. You have to be a serious seeker of knowledge. Okay? And so these are some of the ingredients. And perhaps one of the ways to connect all of this back to today's communities, to our realities, our social realities, our communal realities, is that perhaps in a lot of ways our issues stem from the fact that even though there may be a lot of understanding, and even that is arguable, a lot of the understanding seems to be superficial. There's a lot of superficial understanding. And so we fall short. There's a deep understanding that's required. And here are the ingredients that the imams are mentioning, that the prophet is mentioning. And this is what's missing. If the ingredients are not there, you can't expect the results to be there. There's a consistency. There's a regularity. There's a constant effort. It's hard work. It's perseverance. It's resilience. The more we see of that, then and only then can we expect to start seeing true understanding, deep understanding of whatever we're studying. And this applies both ways. It applies to worldly sciences, the stuff we learn in universities. If we expect and we have ambitions and aspirations that in our communities some people emerge who are going to be scholars and who are going to be influential in their field and so on and so forth, heavyweight thinkers, then this is what's needed. It's not enough to just learn. And then, and perhaps more relevant and more serious for us, more urgent for us, is that we need this in our religion too. People who spend time really understanding the spirit of this religion to see how does it apply in today's world. What does it mean for me individually? What does it mean for me as a family? What does it mean for me as a community, as a member of humanity? What does it mean for me? How do I live? What is this religion telling me to do? And of course, in order to answer those questions, it's not going to be enough to be able to just repeat verses of the Qur'an and understand them superficially, or a few ahadith of the Prophet and understand them superficially. 
Today's world is complicated. We began the whole series with that. It requires a reinterpretation, a reapplication, an ability to apply those seemingly easy, simple, superficial notions to a very complicated reality in today's world. And that means constant study, regular uh, reviewing, regular discussion and deliberation individually and collectively. And the topic that we highlighted today as well, a lot of time management on our part so that we carve out the time to do this. So inshallah, next time we meet, we try to finish at least the ingredients required to be a good learner in Islam. And that will uh, be the last lecture before the month of Ramadan, during which we will pause. And inshallah, we go back to the series after the holy month of Ramadan. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين Maybe a couple of minutes if there are questions, concerns. تفضل Uh, so the question very quickly is what does it practically mean when we say that we have to reflect on knowledge um, I'll be uh, honest this time but I say very short uh, not every type of knowledge means that you are necessarily going to have to spend time reflecting on that but if you do reflect on it because it's a purely theoretical type of knowledge with no practical applications based on this and not you know, saying this is what we encounter in our experience and we know that this is the case, people who really understand what they're learning, they're able to see much more. Let's say a mathematical theorem, for instance. If you're able to really understand what it means, you're probably going to be able to link it to others. You're going to be maybe able one day to criticize this or find a shortcoming or a gap in it or complement it and make it better somehow or better apply it and find a new application of it that someone else had not seen. By the way, this is a huge topic in science, especially in the fields of physics and those related to it. Entire volumes have been written on this, that the greatest physicists have not been the ones who just have a full mastery of, let's say, the mathematical foundations and the theories behind it. It's those who have a, a very strong imagination a very strong conceptual ability to manipulate things uh, uh, intellectually, theoretically. So you play around with the notions, but this can only be the case because you understood the notions so well in the first place. This can only mean that you didn't just understand it superficially. And to me, very quickly, if you look around in the world, how many people have learned the same subject matter? How many people have graduated from the same university with the same program, having gone through the same subject matter. Yes, in some cases, there are others who are complementing this with other types of knowledge. But in a lot of cases, it's because there are those who are really understanding what they're learning much more than others. They're not just doing it to get the grade and move on, pass an exam and move on, and you know, three days later, it's a complete 
blank slate. Nothing is remembered because it was a you know, crash studying the night of or three nights before. Okay, that's the difference. Is that when you're learning something, is it uh, something on which you can reflect? Where did it come from? Why did they come up with this? Who came up with it? When did it appear in history? What does it mean for later? How do I apply it? And this is the non-religious stuff. The moment you go religious, there is always, there has to be a, a practical application to what you're learning. Concrete or not. Okay? You might see it very direct, directly or it may require a little bit of digging and effort and thinking. Okay? And really, if nothing else, you have to wonder, how did this change me? Even if it does not necessarily change something practical on the outside, externally, how is this changing me inside? What does it mean that I understand Imama a little bit more? Or I understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a little bit more? So what? Is it just an accumulation of knowledge? Or is this actually changing my relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Okay? I don't know if I answered fully or not. Big topic. <laughs> Thank you. Any other questions? Tfadlu. Tfadlu. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, very important and very complicated subject matter to address, but in short, the question is about the notion of ta'arrub ba'd al-hijra that we talked a little bit about last time. Um, indirectly, it was uh, mentioned in passing. The idea was when we look at the Holy Quran and when we look at the narrations of Ahl al-Bayt, they clearly tell us not to become a'rab. Okay, and the Arab are the ones who are intentionally disconnecting themselves from the sources of knowledge. So does this still apply in today's world or not, given, for instance, the internet and other means of communication? Generally speaking, we can't just say just because someone has access to the internet that they have access to the sources of knowledge. That's the first layer. Okay, everyone has access to a lot of knowledge. The majority of people will not take full advantage of that and use it, and not everybody even knows know, knows how. Okay? there's a uh, If someone does not, let's say, know the basics of religion, they will not necessarily know where to start and what to look on, what to look for uh, on the internet or elsewhere. Okay? So that would be, for instance, a tool that is there, but will not allow someone to get out of ta'arrub ba'd al-hijra on its own. You still need some sort of guidance, some sort of foundational knowledge to allow you to even think about using the internet this way. Okay? So that's the first component. The second component has to do with being in situations where uh, your your belief system uh, or the practices and rituals related to your religion become very difficult to practice because of the uh, environment that you're in. 
This is a much more complicated topic. In the technical sense, in the fiqhi sense, this is not ta'arrub ba'd al-hijrah. This is a whole lot of other things, but ta'arrub ba'd al-hijrah specifically ref, uh, talks about this. So the Holy Prophet goes to al-Madina and the spread of Islam becomes uh, something that is happening kind of uh, much more easily than it was before. Everyone who wants that knowledge, they can easily seek it out by going to the Holy Prophet and learn. And yet there are people who still refused to do that. Okay, so they main, they insisted on remaining Arab, even though the Holy Prophet was now in a situation where he was accessible and the knowledge is easily there and so on and so forth. This is how we have to view it today. Okay, the second component of this is what if you're in a situation where you are in an environment where it's becoming increasingly difficult for you to practice your religion. In short, is you're not supposed to be in that situation. And if you are, then it does it is it going to mean that you're going to be in a situation where you're going to lose your faith because the priority is always to your belief, not to the rituals. Okay? If that is the case, that is becoming very, very dangerous ground, religiously speaking. If it means that I'm no longer going to be able to continue believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the afterlife, a prophet and religion, and so on and so forth, or I can't secure that for my children, yes, this is becoming serious, uh, uh, important grounds for someone to really reflect on where is my life going and am I in the right place doing the right thing for myself and my family. Of course, you have duties. Yes. Exactly. And so you, can you say, for instance, in three generations, and in most cases, for instance, they may not exist yet. Yeah, that might be a problem. And so there is some thinking to do. There's always a, uh, an equation of balancing to do, pros and cons. Where does it make more, more sense for us, right? For the majority of us, for the majority of the people here, okay, and in our communities, the reason why they left their societies in the first place was because they were now living in an environment where they could no longer practice their religion as they want to. That was the main driver, Beyond anything else, that was becoming the main reason. And they sought places to live where this human right, this basic human right was supposed to be guaranteed. Right? That's where they, why they ended up converging in certain places. The human right of belief freely in whatever religion and to practice whatever religion. When this starts to shift, yes, there is constantly a Recalculation that has to happen, a reassessment that has to happen. Is is this still proper logic that I am still here doing this? Not here, whoever is in any situation. Okay, is this still the case? Am I still in the best place for myself, for my dependents, for those that I have a duty towards or not? Okay, this is a hugely important topic. And so on the one side, you say there is also another duty, but that requires another discussion because it's not just to the commoner. This is going to go further to the one who is equipped and who has the ability to live in this environment and not only maintain their faith, but affect others and to preserve that faith elsewhere in the world. Right? It might be very easy to be a good practicing Muslim when you're in an environment where everybody is. This is a lot more difficult to do when no one is. 
When the Holy Prophet was in a situation in Mecca where it was becoming impossible for them to continue to worship, some of them were openly defiant, right? Some of the Muslims were openly defiant, and some of them would get tortured, and some of them got killed, and so on and so forth. But a group of them, the Holy Prophet told them, migrate, leave, go to al Habasha. And there is a just king there. He will greet you, explain to him that you are running away from oppression and tyranny, and that's it, those people, and they went in a number of waves, and they established a community there, and some of them never came back, and some of them came back three years or five years or seven years later. Okay, They were in an environment that is completely different from theirs, but yet in that pro and con calculation, it made more sense for them to go there than to stay in Mecca, for instance. Okay, And they did not the point I'm trying to make is they did not even necessarily automatically rush back to Medina when the Holy Prophet migrated to Medina. Okay, So all of this needs to be studied, but as I always say for these cases, there is no clear-cut black-and-white answer. There's a lot of thinking, a lot of reflection, and there's a lot of personal considerations that have to be taken into account for these, these, situ these situations. Thank you for that question. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين